I gotta ask, is our society any better than Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, we, we, we can sit in our homes and we can sit here in our, our city that's pretty protected, pretty safe. But believe me, there are things going on in this world. There are things going on up in Fort Wayne. There are things going on up in Chicago and Detroit in our nation's capital. Are we any better? Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire on that day, on that very day. Do we deserve anything less? No, we don't. Consequences of our sin are so great and we must uphold righteousness. And the only reason why God hasn't destroyed us is because of his faithful believers. We're praying for this world and praying for their neighbors. And he's waiting for the right number of people to come, those who are destined to come to Christ, to come to Christ. We must stand strong in our faith and our obedience to God's word. We must turn away from apostasy and seek God's truth because we will be held accountable for what we have done. You know, Solomon, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And he said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, he says, What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. I see, I'm of the belief that we live in a, in a world of cycles. Some people like to think that the, the time is linear, that you start here and you just go this way. But I believe that we come back around and around and around to the same things all the time. There are cycles in the world of business. There are cycles in the world of sicknesses. There are cycles in the world of the church. There are cycles in all of our lives. Each of us can go back and we can look through time. We can look back into history. And we usually can find a connection with someone who is going through something very similar to what we are experiencing. And it mirrors our own. And, and when we do that, we pull the past into the present and in other words, it's usually the same people, different names. The same sins, different opportunities. Now remember, last week, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's urging believers to contend earnestly for the faith. And what he means is to keep a hold of the faith. Do not lose the faith that was brought to us by the words of Christ and through his word. Don't lose it. Contend for it. Fight for it. Strive for it. And it's hard to do in this world of growing apostasy that we're seeing around us. And what apostasy is, all it is is this act of abandoning something that you once believed in, and now you're believing something different. Or, it's you believed at one time, and now you don't believe at all. You believe in nothing. There's a saying that says, those that believe in nothing will fall for everything. Apostasy has been a problem in our world from the very beginning. If we go back to Adam and Eve, we go back to the garden. They lived, think about this, they lived in a perfect place. There was nothing that they needed that they didn't have. They had all the food they ever could want. The weather was perfect. I, I would love it if it could snow and be 70 degrees. That would be great for me. You know, it's probably like that there. I don't know. What we do know is that they lived in a place that there was no need. They had the perfect relationship with God. He would come in the cool of the morning and he would walk with them and they would have face-to-face -face conversations with their creator. There was nothing that they were in need of. 
But doubt crept into the garden in the form of the serpent called Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser. Genesis 3 tells us the story of how this happened, how it, when it happened. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm not going to pack it all this morning. But just in those verses. But did you see that moment when apostasy crept in? The serpent asked Eve a question. And what did she do? She tried to reason it out. Instead of going to God and saying, okay, so the serpent told me this. What is it? Is it true? She didn't go to God's word. In fact, she changed God's word. We look begin the, before this, we see where God told Adam, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden of good, of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. He never said, you can't touch it. Now, either Adam added that to her, or she added it herself, just to kind of keep herself from doing it. She changed the word of God. She was no longer contending for the faith. And she created apostasy. And of course, Adam was right there. He heard the whole thing, and he did the same thing. He should have stopped it, and he didn't. Satan has used that same tactic throughout history and into today. And, he, and the surprising thing is, it still works. It still works. Paul, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy of a time that was to come. And I think we're there today where apostasy will run rampant. Not in the world, but in the church 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Beloved, that is what's going on today. In the church. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I could give you days of videos of sermons where they are just tickling the ears of the people. They're not, they're not showing, they're not truly exegeting scripture. See, there's, there's two things you can do. There's exegesis, which is I take what Scripture says and what the context was and what it's, it meant to the people who originally got it, who originally received it, and I explain what that is. There's eisegesis, where I take everything in the world that's going on and I try to bend Scripture to it. That's wrong. And then there's narcissus. Narcissus is when I try to put myself in Scripture and say, well, that's me, that's me, that's me. No, I'm not David. I don't have giants I need to slay. I'm not Joshua. Those are stories that show us who God is. I'm me, and I'm redeemed, and I need to contend for the faith. Men will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Jude's warning the church that, 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 that the deceiver, the, uh, the Satan, the Sahasatan, the accuser, the, of the liar, 
He is still alive and well, and he's still in the church. He's going to use, so Jude is going to use history as a warning. So he's going to give us our first, our first kind of glimpse into that, going back into history and seeing what was being done and how we need to bring that forward and say, okay, it still applies to us. He says in Jude 5, he says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, so apparently they were forgetting some things, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And must remember that the first century church was mostly Jewish. They were mostly Jewish converts. The exodus from Egypt was a very pivotal moment in the life of the Israelites. If you had experienced what the Israelites had experienced coming out of Egypt... It would have been very difficult for you to deny the existence of God, to see the plagues. And on on one of my YouTube channels, excuse me, on one of my YouTube channels, I'm trying to push it really hard here so I can speak. Um, I'm in the book of Exodus. I'm reading through a chapter of the Bible every day. And we're in the book of Exodus, and we just went through the plagues. To see that, and experience that. And then to have, Jesus, to have Jesus or God lead you out to the point where you're standing at the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds and you're, you're trapped between Pharaoh and the water. To see Moses raise his staff and have the waters part. You can't, it'd be very difficult to deny it. It'd be very difficult to see the pillar of smoke during the day and the pillar of fire at night and not know that God is God and God is protecting you says in Exodus 13, says, And the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of a cloud and led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. See, this pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was not just symbolism. I think we've got to be careful too many times to read symbolism into the Scriptures. It's not a symbol. That really is what was there. It was very much more, it was what led the Israelites out. It was a testimony to the Israelites and a testimony to the nations that they were going to encounter that God was protecting them. God had miraculously intervened and saved them from slavery and led them through the desert. If you go further into Exodus, you'll find places where the kings of these nations are scared because they've heard of what God has done. They experienced the mighty deeds of God. But even in the midst of that, many of the Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness. You know, there was a whole generation. When they first came out of Egypt, they go up to the, to the borders of Palestine. And God tells them, send in, send in the spies. They send in 12 spies. Ten of them come back saying, there's no way we can do it. There's giants in the land. The Nephilim are there. We'll talk about them in a moment. And Joshua and Caleb are like, no, we can do it. With God, we can do it. Well, they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. And a whole generation dies in the desert except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And Moses did not even get to go into the promised land because he disobeyed God. And instead of talking to a rock and making water come out, he struck it with his staff because he was mad. And God said, you just lost it. You can't go into the promised land. That doesn't mean Moses wasn't a righteous man. 
It doesn't mean that Moses isn't with God right now. We know he is because he appeared with Elijah, with Christ on Mount Hermon. We know he is with God. He was a godly man. But he made a mistake, and he had to pay the consequence of that. But a whole generation besides Joshua and Caleb never got to go into the promised land. The ones who came out of Egypt never got to go in except for Joshua and Caleb. Because they were the only two spies who said, we can do it. While Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he was up there for 40 days. God was giving him the Ten Commandments. The people decided that, you know, I no longer want, we no longer want to worship Yahweh. We're going to worship a golden calf. So, so Moses' own brother had them gather gold, and he melted it down. He created a golden calf, and they were worshiping it. And because of that apostasy, 3,000 men were killed on that day when Moses came down the mountain. The lesson is very clear. That's why Jude is using it. We must remember that God is faithful. God will help us. He will lead us if we are obedient to him and if we trust him. We must heed the warnings from history and avoid the pitfalls of unbelief. See, there's a consequence for disobedience. Now, I, I'm firmly of the belief that we are forgiven of our sins, but I always tell people, you can be forgiven of your sins, but there are human consequences for your sins. If I spend my life degrading my body with drugs and sex and, and everything that completely ruins my body, and I come to Christ, my soul is saved. But I want to be honest with you, my body is wrecked, and I'm going to suffer the rest of my life because of it. If I go to somebody, if I wrong someone, and I go and I ask for forgiveness and they forgive me, it's, they forgive me, but the relationship is still tainted and I have to rebuild it. There are consequences for our sins. They don't just go away. With our consequence with God is done. He's forgiven us. But we have consequences with man and we have results of what we do to ourselves, what we do to others around us. Those consequences should be a very sober reminder of us to walk in faithfulness. The writer of Psalm says in Psalm 26, he says, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. So parents, all those times you told your kids it, it's important who your friends are, you're right. It is important who your friends are. It doesn't mean that you don't reach out to those who are lost and befriend them and attempt to bring them to Christ. What it does mean is you don't condone and you don't get involved in the sins that they are perpetuating. If that wasn't enough, if what Jude was saying about the Israelites in, at Mount Sinai wasn't enough, Jude gives them another example in Jude 6. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, I know there's a lot of different ideas of what this is. I've done the research. I, it makes sense to me. And you may not agree with me. That's fine. It's not a faith issue. It's not a salvation issue. So there's no reason to split on it, but some people want to. But understand, this is one of only three places in Scripture that mentions that angels have left their proper dwelling. The second one, at least in our list, is 1 Peter. 
For Christ, this is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, <coughs> being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Where was Jesus during those three days when he was, after he was crucified? He went to Hades. Not to get rid of sin. He had no sin. He took our sin on him. When he died on the cross, it was gone. Why did he go to these spirits in prison? Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So right there we know that these spirits are in prison. Are not spirits from yesterday. They are spirits from the days of Noah, from before Noah built the flood. But while the ark was being prepared, in which a, the, a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So now we know three things about these angels or these spirits. Number one, we know that they're incorporeal, which means they're spirits. They're not bodies. They don't have physical bodies. They are spirits. They're in the underworld. They're in Hades and Sheol, the place of the dead as is known Sheol in Hebrew. Second, we know that they are imprisoned. They're being held in chains in gloomy darkness, waiting for the day of the Lord when they will face judgment for what they did. Thirdly, we know that their sin was committed before the flood, as we see in 1 Peter, which brings us to the third place where we see God mentioning spirit, or angels leaving their proper place. Genesis 6, 1-4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These are the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These are the same Nephilim that the Israelites encountered in Israel, in, in Palestine, when they went to take the promised land. Long story how they came back. We don't have time to get into it now. If you want to know about it, I've got a couple books you can read. We could probably spend a few hours here talking about how this all worked out, how the unseen realm, we go deep diving into the unseen realm, and how Genesis 6, 1 Peter, Jude 5, Revelation, all the Gospels tie together to say, this is what is going on. Along with all of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel, to be one specifically. Some of the angels who are known in many places as Benai Elohim, which is the Hebrew word, which means sons of God, left their place in the council of God and came to earth, had relations with women, and taught humanity things that they should not have been taught. Because of this, some of them are being held in chains to, the to possibly either prevent them from anybody else from doing it, prevent them from doing it again, or to keep the other angels from deciding they want to do this. So according to Peter, Jesus, during his time in the grave, went to these spirits in chains to proclaim his victory over them because they had lost and he had won. If we go to Paul, Paul also confirms this because he says in Colossians 2.15, he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, he's, whenever Paul uses the term rulers and authorities, he's always talking about the spiritual forces of evil in the unseen realm. Every place, that's what he's talking about. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus died on the cross, 
they lost. The cross triumphs over all evil. These spirits, angels, if you want to think of them that way, angel is just a title. It's not necessarily a name of, you know, we're humans, but that's, you know, that's what we are. Angels are, are that's their, their job. Angel just means messenger in Hebrew or in Greek. In Hebrew, it's malach, which means messenger. If you want to think about them this way, once held a position of authority and were in the presence of God the Almighty. They were with God. They saw everything. They were even with God when he created the world. We go to the book of Job. Job 38, 4 through 7 says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So we got the time frame. He's laying the foundations. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? So God has laid the corner. He has not created man yet. And there was what he says. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The Benai Ha Elohim. The sons of God. These are not humans. These are angels. Sons of God because God created them. They're his sons. They're not the son of God. They're not Jesus. They're not God. God is, God is, God is distinct. There's only one God. In three persons. But these are not Yahweh. But they shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the world. These are not humans. And even though they saw all this, they decided to follow their own desires and rebel against the authority of God. They committed apostasy and were cast out of heaven and were awaiting in darkness for the cha- the cha- and chains for their final judgment. The book of Psalms, the very first, the very first chapter, the very first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. And if those two examples of the Israelites rebelling against God in the desert, and the angels rebelling against God in Genesis 6 is not enough, Jude's going to provide us with another one. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of, uh, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah is their, their place, they are in the cities in the plains of the Jordan. It's very close to around the place where the Dead Sea is. Some people even believe it's possible that when they get destroyed, that's what creates the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea was created because there was no outlet for it. So all the water flows from the Sea of Galilee on down into along the Jordan, along that area, all the way down to the Dead Sea, and it stops. And, when, and there's, when the water stops, it becomes stagnant. There's nothing that could, no place it could go. And then there's salt. It's a very salty area. It's a low area in, this, in the world, so it's a very salty area, and it becomes like salt. If you ever go to the Dead Sea, you can float in it. You know what I mean? You just lay back, you just float. So, the Bible describes Sodom and Gomorrah as exceedingly wicked. Genesis 18. said, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have 
have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and not. And if not, I will know. Now, obviously, God knows. He knows everything. But in the process of doing this, he has a purpose for one coming down and meeting with Abraham and then going on to sending two of his angels on down to Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, there are three, three men who come to Abraham. One of them is Christ. It's a Christophany. It's the appearance of God, of Jesus in human form before he came as a baby. Don't know what he looked like. We don't know what he looked like. But it definitely is a Christophany. Both these cities were places of moral depravity where sexual immorality and perversions were rampant. But that wasn't their only sin. If we go to the book of Ezekiel, we read more about it. In Ezekiel 16, verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So God sends two angels while Jesus stayed behind and talked to Abraham. Abraham actually kind of bargained with God. We'll read that story sometime. Angels walked down to the city, and sitting at the gate was Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Came from, came from Ur, all the way over in what is modern-day Iraq. And he's sitting at the gate, which was his custom. It says in Genesis 19, it says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, why would he do that? Because he knew there was something different about them. These were not just ordinary men. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. That was something you would do during that time. If a stranger came, you would bring them into your house. It's interesting though that he knew there was something different about these guys. He knew there was something more to them and he urged them to stay the night, not out in the city where it was dangerous, it was unsafe, but to come into his house and to stay. And they relented, they went with him, but while they were there, something happened. All the men of the city, all of them, came to Lot's door. See, in Genesis 19, he said, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Okay, that sounds pretty innocent. They just want to get to know their names, right? No. That is a term that is used for they wanted to have sex with them. And this was so severe in its depravity that Lot does something rather odd. As a father, I, I kind of bristle at this, especially as a father of a daughter. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. He said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. That's how we know it wasn't just to, you know, get to know their names. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. 
You bring someone into your house, you are to protect them more than your own family. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn or to, to live amongst us. He's a, he's a foreigner and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, which is the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Lot offers his own virgin daughters to this crowd, this mob, so that they would leave these men alone. But they refuse, and the angels intervene. I got to ask, is our society any better than Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, we, we could sit in our homes, and we could sit here in our, our city that's pretty protected, pretty safe. But believe me, there are things going on in this world. There are things going on up in Fort Wayne. There are things going on up in Chicago and Detroit, in our nation's capital. I've mentioned this before. The research I've done on the sex trade, the trafficking of young children, is terrible because they're the, the largest, in the United States, the largest trafficking organization was in Nebraska. And that organ, that company, their main goal was to bring young boys and girls to Washington, D.C. for the people of power, to abuse. Are we any better? Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire on that day, on that very day. Do we deserve anything less? No, we don't. The consequences of our sin are so great and we must uphold righteousness. And the only reason why God hasn't destroyed us is because of his faithful believers. We're praying for this world and praying for their neighbors. And he's waiting for the right number of people to come, those who are destined to come to Christ, to come to Christ. We must stand strong in our faith and our obedience to God's word. We must turn away from apostasy and seek God's truth because we will be held accountable for what we have done. Like I said, we can be forgiven of our sins. It's not a salvation thing, but you will be held accountable for what you have done. You don't believe me? It says in Romans 14, Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? He's talking to believers. He says, are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself, to God. Each of us, he's including himself in this. And Paul's a Christian, he's a believer. We may be forgiven our sins, but we will have to account for all that we've done. Good and bad. And it won't be a matter of, for us as believers, it won't be a matter of our salvation, but it will be a matter of shame. That's why it says Christ will wipe away every tear. Why would we be crying? I'd be joyous, right? Won't have this bad voice anymore. It'd be on. No pain, no sorrow. But I have to give an account to God for what I've done. And I'll probably weep for what I should have done that I didn't do. And Jesus will say, it's okay, it's my son. I took your sins. You're good. Come, enter. But we, have, we are going to be held accountable. One day, one day, God is going to judge all sin. 
So we should be praying that we, as it says in, Jesus says in Luke 21, he says, stay awake at all times. We need to be praying that we are awake at all times. We need to pray that we have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. There's a lot that's going to take place. Um, in Sunday school class, we're, and there's no Sunday school today, obviously, because we have the lunch, but we're talking about signs of the times, things that are going to happen. Just go to Revelation. I mean, I'm just, I wasn't planning on this, but I'm, I want to go there. Um, I'm going to go to the book of Revelation. in Revelation 6. Now I watched the land open the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. This, this, somebody's going to come to power. They won't come to power by force. They have a bow but they have no arrows. They'll come conquering in peace but they will be a conqueror. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And look, behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And then when you open the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And we could sit and say, whew, Oh, I'm glad I won't have to go through that. Well, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure we won't go through some of that. Because look what it says here in the next verse. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, So sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And then we get what happens next, the sixth seal, which is the, look and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished and the scroll and being rolled up and every mountain island was moved from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the and generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's what's coming. Those are the things that Jesus is praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Because ultimately, one day, we are going to stand before the Son of Man. Because he says, and to stand before the Son of Man, as Paul says in Romans, so that each one of us may give an account of himself to God. 
We need to contend for the faith. We need to stay faithful to God. We need to search the scriptures for God's word. We need to know it and we need to live it. And we need to be separate, separate than the world was. Not separated from the world. Because Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples, said, Lord, protect them. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the world. Bad things are going to happen. Even today, bad things happen to us. But we have to persevere knowing that God ultimately is in control. He is sovereign. He'll get us through. And what a great reward we have waiting for us when he does. Let's pray.